Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network Hindu Studies channel podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkorn. You could find out about my academic background at rajbalkorn.com. More importantly, I'm speaking today with Dr. David Mason, who is editor-in-chief for the journal Ecumenica, Performance and Religion. And he's also the South Asia area editor for Asian Theatre Journal. Now, I'm speaking to him today in his capacity as the author of this exciting book, uh, The Performative Ground of Religion and Theatre. David, it's a pleasure having you on the channel today. Oh, thanks, thanks. I'm really happy for the opportunity. Well, this is a brand new book, Hot Off the Presses with Rutledge, uh, just earlier this year, and the year is yet young. It's April, I hear. And so this came out in January. there's a lot in the book that I like to dig into in terms of big ideas and there's a specific chapter as you probably anticipate that we'll dive into in particular. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we get into the meat of the book, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about your background or your interests? My interests have always been in the ways that uh, religion and theater overlap. Uh, sometimes people don't really get how they would overlap. I mean, conceptually, the, the concepts might seem not not to even belong together in the in the same basket right i mean theater is something that conventionally in the west people do on a stage and audience comes and watches they walk away and then religion is a sort of amorphous concept uh that tries to account for unfortunately in in the modern world uh, tries to account for beliefs uh, and also some kinds of behavior and i i i I think both ways of thinking, both of those things are misconstrued in common conceptions. And if if we think about the ways that we undertake religion and theater as bodily practice, we find that they're not in different baskets at all, but largely overlapping. But I, I, I kind of got ahead of myself, I guess. My, my interests go back a long ways to where things like theater and religion coincide in, in explicit ways. In the Western world, in, in medieval Europe, you have plenty of examples of theater that is deliberately tuned to serve religious purposes. And uh, my interests as an undergraduate and a graduate student kind of pointed that direction. But you can find plenty of examples I discovered as a, as a, as a young student, you can find plenty of examples of this kind of intersection of religious practice and theatrical practice uh, that are still alive and well in India and pursuing those phenomenon as they presented themselves uh, took me uh, to India as a graduate student or directly out of my undergraduate program to India and then ultimately pursuing a degree first in South Asian studies and then in then in theater research, um, a PhD, uh, concentrating largely on Ras Leela theater in Northern India. That's 
that was the subject of my dissertation. And also, uh, and my, my first book had to do with Ross Leela theater. And since that book, um, I've been trying to spin this interest in the intersection of religion and theater out into a bigger theory for both of the phenomena. And, and maybe that endeavor is partly realized in this most recent book. Although I don't know if you have the same kind of experience, you're a writer too, and you have a recent book on Durga. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're a genius in the way that I'm not, but every time I finish a book, I realize how inadequate the book is. I mean, it's like completing a book tells you what the next book has to be. (laughs) And so that's good. A good book is more of a beginning, uh, more of an introduction than a conclusion to to an area of study, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of where I arrived. I finished this book and I looked at it and I thought, oh, I got to write another one to try to fix all of this. Um, that's um, where I'm at. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm in a similar boat that I'm currently uh, disembarking on a... On a uh, so I looked at the myths of Durga in the Markani Purana right. and then gave a nod to the solar myths of the Markani Purana. But... Uh, Basically, in just just establishing the, the parallel between the two, now I find myself having to write a book on the solar myths to explain really, you know, what I what I began to unearth in the first book. So yeah, of right. course, and and we we are the hardest on ourselves, and it's always to see what we would. Have, it's always easy to see what we would have done differently and all the flaws with the book. But hey, um, if Rutledge has published both of her books, we can. <laughs> Probably assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That they hold water. Uh, well, I hope so. Everybody else will be a better judge of that than, than uh-huh. I. Um, uh, I mean, ultimately, this is the, the the book comes at a at a stage of development of ideas, and there's going to be another stage. And uh, sure, sure. <laughs> so, so that's a good segue in terms of uh, digging into the book proper. Um, it's at the intersection of theater and religion. And let me just say, on the one hand. Um, one can think of the word performance come to mind. Uh, an actress performance, a uh, ritual performance, we use the same word in English. Uh, with yeah. a slightly different connotation. Um, yet, of course, you will, you, will, uh, you will encounter folks who have a knee-jerk response to, to um, comparing theatrical performance with religious performance. And, and I will say as an intro to your book um, that it's interesting that in this comparison, you seem to not be saying that um, religious performance uh, is, um, if you want to be crude, lower to the level of theatrical performance, but rather that theatrical performance can be raised to the level of religious performance. And, and perhaps I, I mischaracterized you, I'm not sure, but maybe you can say more about that concept. No, I don't think that's mischaracterizing at all. Um, and in fact, I, I mean, in a general way, you suggest, yeah, you can meet those people who don't want you know the, you to talk about their religious practice as theatrical practice. And and in fact, I met many of those people. <laughs> you know, in some ways, um, uh, yeah, I I had to figure out ways of negotiating what. Um, what I, I don't know, my, my, my argument is not all that complicated. It's just, it depends on some concepts that are um, common in the academy and not common outside the academy. So tell us the gist of the book or the question the book answers. In right, right, right. Of- so, you know, um, I, I approach some people saying that I've got a PhD in theater studies and uh, um, I'm interested in uh, 
this element of your religious practice and not always, but sometimes there's this, you know, the Venetian blinds just slowly close up. You can see it in their faces. And, and what, what I then find myself trying to talk through is the assumption that approaching religious practice as a theater person means that I'm regarding theater practice as something that's uh, a religious practice as something that's fake, right? And, and therefore minimizing it and belittling it, um, bringing it down, as you say, right? Bringing it down to the level of theater, which is, just, you know, this, this phenomenon that is fundamentally pretending. Um, and actually, uh, this is, this is, this is really where I think we go wrong in our concepts of both theater and religion. My, uh, my approach is not at all that religious practice in general is fake in the way that theater is. Uh, I don't think theater's fake. And I think considering theater as essentially a matter of pretending is to ignore the experience that we all get in theater. We all know the kinds of experiences that come from theater that are not fake at all. Uh, and when we start trying to rationalize those experiences, then we start to adopt the language of fakeness and pretend and representation and all of that. Uh, but I think those, th I think that way of rationalizing our theatrical experience um, is unfair to theater. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it leads us in the most productive path. Uh, so partly why I wanted to study religion was to, to help us uh, to borrow from religion, the way that it is art articulated. Um, how religious activity produces something that's real. Uh, to borrow that, those concepts and that language to better articulate how theater really creates something that is in fact what it is and not primarily an activity that is representational and pointing to something that's not actually there. So insofar as a religious experience can be said to be irreducible, um, uh, so too can, uh, so too can, can one understand uh, an aesthetic experience? Yes, and, and this is what we find going a long way back in India. We, we find some lines of thinking that have recognized that the aesthetic experience and the religious experience are not neatly divided from each other. Well, that would be a great segue to dive, dive into the specific chapter I had in mind. Um, but prior to doing so, then what would you say would be the main overall argument in terms of these two, uh, the, between the religious and the aesthetic experience? What would you say your book is overall arguing? Yeah, my main argument is that what we do makes stuff. Um, I mean, if, if I reduce it to a single elevator sentence, right, that's it. 
When we do things, we make things. When we do religious things, uh, however we conceive that adjective religious, then, you know, maybe we can say we make religious things. When we do theater things, then maybe we make theater things. But, but those adjectives, those characterizations, those are secondary uh, impositions on, on what we make. Um, in doing a ritual or in performing a character or what I think is more important in performing a role of an audience member, we bring into existence something that wasn't there already. And maybe most importantly, one of the things we bring into existence by doing things is our personal identities. Uh, I, I don't think that our personal identity precedes what we do. I think it's produced by what we do and, and can be shaped then in, in a fluid, mutable way um, by first doing things and also doing things differently. So it's no wonder you find, um, <laughs> you find a sort of uh, kindred-spirited interlocutor in... Um, Indian aesthetic theory in terms yeah. of this, 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 this fertile overlap between religious and aesthetic experiences. Yeah. Maybe it give us in your own words some background about why you find uh, Rasa theory compelling before we look at the specific data you share in your book. Right, sure. Um, uh, the thing I like about Rasa is in it in what I think is its, it, it, what I think is its fundamental issue is that theater practice is not just the domain of actors. Now, I don't think, uh, going back as far as Russia goes, perhaps, you know, the fourth or fifth century CE in the Nazi Shastra, it, it, this argument is implied. Um, maybe not made as expressly or as explicitly as as I'm going to make it sound, but I I I, I don't think there is any Russa theory without. Um, once you take the audience out of Russa, you don't you don't have a Russa theory anymore. Um, chapter six of the Nacha Shastra is is pretty much exclusively concerned with the audience experience. The rest of the Nacha Shastra has to do with you know what what are actors going to do? How are they going to move their hands and what, what kind of facial expressions are going to make. And that's, that's the bigger concern of the Nacho Shastra is true. But the theoretical chapter, that chapter six, is concerned with the audience and the, the fundamental notion of Russa is that the audience does something. It's not a passive entity, no matter how passive it might seem, even in Western circumstances, which, you know, invented a very passive audience about 150 years ago. But the, even the most silent audience member is not silent is not passive but is really actively working in collaboration with artists in the theater event and all of that work produces what the audience member is the audience person comes in as something but in the course of doing theater with the actors the audience person creates something else and leaves the theater as a as a different thing than 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 the audience person came in as and the actors too. Anyway, I think that's that's what's really at the at the root of Russia. So it sounds like the parallel runs something like um, 
in the ritual context, when there's uh, the priest performing the ritual and the, uh, the Yajamana or the patron, mm. um, they go into the ritual, the patron that is, um, patron slash devotee, and they go into the ritual and their, their attention, um, their prana, the word comes to mind, their attention, their sort of, their participation co-creates an experience in the ritual whereby they are transformed just by witnessing the priest perform the ritual actions. So similarly, an audience co-creates um, an aesthetic experience with uh, the performers such that they may come away transformed. Is that parallel? Yes, yes. And that, and that aesthetic experience that audience members might um, create in collaboration with artists, that's a, that's a constitutive experience, I would say. It's, um, it's not, uh, I don't know what the word would be, it's not, it's not immaterial that experience ends up being a building block of that thing that we identify as identity. And you're positing, well, it seems to me, it seems to me you're positing a, an experience or a presence of an ontological reality. That's not just something we create with our perception. Yeah. Yeah. Although there's some complication here too, because so the, the development of Russia theory in its origin coincides with classical Sanskrit drama. And it seems to me that classical Sanskrit drama had figured out fairly early in its development that um, the issue is not the, the theatrical issue is not that audiences come in and then for the duration of the performance, they just agreed to believe that what's going on on stage is, is real as opposed to, you know, um, but, but knowing that it's really fake as opposed to the real material reality that they inhabit. The thing that classical Sanskrit drama throws it at folks principally through its, through structural elements, through the obligatory introduction, the introductory scenes, the prologue scenes that they all have, the thing that it throws at audiences is uh, the material reality that you, audience members, are inhabiting, that, that's not actually real. So you, <laughs> the reason you can experience theater as something that's real is because you're not inhabiting, the theater world isn't any more fake than the, than the world that you're inhabiting. Without complicating things further, really, it really, uh, I'll share a bit uh, towards the end of the interview in terms of how this hits me and some of the work that I've done. Oh, good. But it, but it, but it, it really, um, you know, without bringing in another sort of situation around brown pegs and square holes and, and Western theory and, and um, Indian practices, but it, it really sounds to me like not something not dissimilar from um, what the Jungians would call the archetypal, the archetypal experience. Hmm. That, that could be. I think, I think uh, Jung's going to be a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, so I'll, I'll take your word for that. Sure. We can, I, I can share a little later in terms of okay. some of the courses I've, I've taught where, um, where we look at sci-fi fantasy as religion and vice versa. I don't think the, the, that uh, folks line up for uh, hours and days to see a, a, a fantastic, quote-unquote, fantastic story like like Star Wars, or I don't think the Game of Thrones has such a grip on our culture just because it's entertainment. I think hmm. I'm inclined to agree there is an element of uh, of these fantastical stories that that um, do on some level perform the work of religion. Oh yeah, and I mean, as far as examples go, that you put your finger on something that's pretty important in the way that it's illustrative of the, the, the Star Wars fan who will, I guess it doesn't happen so much with the big multiplex theaters anymore, but back in the day, back in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, the, the Star Wars fans who would 
camp out side theater in tents and so forth so that they could see the opening. What is that but religious devotion? And it, I don't know that it's devotion necessarily to George Lucas or whoever else you might think is behind the whole Star Wars thing. I think it's devotion to a particular mode of existence. It's a co- it's an experience, right? It's yeah. a, it's a co-created experience that can be equally described as spiritual as well as aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do in chapter six, where you use uh, Rasafiri for your argument? Um, well, I'm concerned with uh, uh, to I guess to reiterate, I'm concerned with the way in which theater is not faith. I think I'm, I'm trying to assert this argument as a, over objection people in my field, right? I mean, the, the basic overriding notion of theater is that it's, that it's a, it's a pretended sort of, it's just pretend. Okay. We'll just leave it there. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that this performance theory that develops in fourth or fifth century CE in, in India helps us understand how an activity that seems to be pretend might not be pretend. thing about Rasa is its concern with reflexive consciousness and intuiting way back when that this, that the capacity to reflect on one's own existence facilitates a concept of self as uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Not inessential, but um, the self is not irreducible, but always in development. And that de- development is channeled through aesthetic experiences, especially those experiences that we attend to deliberately. So give us an example uh, that you use in the chapter. Oh, uh, let's see. I don't know. Did you have a specific example in mind? I can't remember how many different things uh, I have not well, had about it. Well, um, why don't you share with us, you know, what you do with Raslila, for example? Oh, 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 yeah. Well, I spent a lot of time with Raslila. Um, so Raslila ends up, it's, there's, a, there's a historical, there's a fairly coherent historical line from Russia theory in the fourth century to the so-called Bhakti revival in the 1500s. And the invention of Rasli the theater was part of that re-emergence or emergence of, of Bhakti. This is devotional religion, right? <laughs> that is the, the, a couple of the principal minds behind the theology that was developed in the, I don't know, theology is the best word, but the, the religious thinking that developed in the, in the 1500s to support and sustain and to promote Bhakti especially coming from Chaitanya, uh, those minds relied on a thousand years or so uh, of thinking about Rasa. From its origins in performance theory, Rasa passes through a number of hands, mostly gets refashioned as literary theory. But by the time it arrives at um, Abhinava Gupta in, you know, 1,100 or so, it it's become a combined literary and religious phenomenon, partly because folks start treating Russia um, as a theory of religious literature, scripture, etc. What as it passes as Russia passes through Abhinavagupta, then it it gets redirected back towards its roots in theater, and 
then when the Goswamis show up in the 1500s, they grab this theory, Russet theory, and it's recovered uh, theatrical content and developed then complex ways of thinking about practicing devotion as theatrical practice. And that, that's happening in the same century that this particular kind of theater gets invented. That's Rusley the Theater. Now, Rusley the Theater then is the dramatization of Krishna lore, of which, you know, there's volumes and volumes, all these stories about Krishna being a child in Vrindavan and playing with his various friends and causing trouble because he's mischievous. All these stories get staged originally for uh, the the crowds of pilgrims that start showing up in Vrindavan in, in that century and in the 1600s. These stories get dramatized for performance on the pilgrimage circuit so that, you know, after you've walked all day from one site to another, then the evening's entertainment is uh, Rossley, the troop shows up and they dramatize whatever story of Krishna is relevant to the moment. And what I look at in one of the things I look at in chapter six, then is the current iteration of Ross Lila theater, which in some ways is very conventional. More often than not, these days you'll find Ross Lila performed inside or, you know, at least in a covered space on a kind of proscenium stage rather than in the round outside, which is the root of its development. Um, and, you know, you got people in costumes and they're reciting lines. And they're, in some cases, then you've got electrical lighting and you've got amplified voices through microphones and expensive sound equipment. And you've got curtains that open and close. And it, I mean, looking at it from some distance, it's just another bit of theater where people are pretending to be this, that, and the other thing. But the, one of the things that happens in Rossley, the theater, that uh, gives the lie to this whole pretense is there are moments built into the performance sometimes during the performance, but certainly at the very end, where the audience is, the, the, the playing space is opened up to the audience. The audience can enter the playing space and they're so as to enact their devotion to Krishna in the body of the Krishna actor, person playing Krishna and Radha as well, right? There's always, a, it's, a, it's a pair, Krishna and Radha. You got these two actors, always boys. And at the end or other moments in between, they'll assume position on probably some kind of a dais or a throne and devotee audience members then get to come and touch their feet and and undertake other acts of devotion directed at the actor. Now, in certain Western modes of thinking, this is kind of weird, right? You, You shouldn't be, I'm talking about Western religious circumstances. You shouldn't be, you know, worshiping an actor. That's, that's untoward. But of course, that's not what's going on. The the devotees and the actors have collaborated to create a circumstance in which divinity is manifest in the body of the actors. Like, oh yeah, this is supposed to be a discussion of Russia and I'm just kind of rambling on. I, but all of that uh, is important to understanding, I think, how the devotee audience members are principal creative force in constituting the appearance of divinity in that actor. This And this is then coming from uh, the Goswamis in the 1500s, uh, who tease out a doctrine of acting as a means of entering into Krishna's reality. 
And here they're, they're, they're picking up again on this, this thing I mentioned in Sanskrit drama saying, you know, this material reality that you're inhabiting, that's, uh, you're a little deluded to think that that's what, that's real. The, the reality that you're inhabiting, that's, that's just as fake as theater circumstances is. So uh, the Goswamis uh, uh, later suggest that the material identity that the, you know, the body and the, and the self that you think you inhabit that's kind of a of a pretense. What you really want to do through religious devotion—that's that's religious activity. What you really want to do is construct a self that lives in real reality. That is where you know divinity is, where Krishna is, you, and you do that by playing. This is this is the meaning of the word lila that we find in Ras lila. We find it in Ram lila too, right? If you undertake to play in certain ways, then you will develop a self that does exist with the divine Krishna. And the reason that you know it does is because the experience that you derive from that playing is constituted by playful joy, which is the essence of the divine entity. So if we take, for example, um, in your book, I believe in the conclusion, uh, you make the comparison of uh, Durga Puja with, for example, a performance of the Lion King. Now, let's just... Um, rather than unpack Durga Puja, since we already have you talking about Raslila. Right. Now, uh, I have a, a main question I want to ask you about this, but but the minor question first is, so, so tell us then, is it comparable? The actors, the, the devotees' participation in the Raslila, in terms of honoring the actors mm-hmm. as Krishna manifest, you obviously are saying overall it's comparable, but tell us... Is it comparable or is it fully comparable? How is it not entirely comparable between that and us attending the Lion King? The question that I would pose as an answer um, is what, what kind of experience do you have at the Lion King and what kind of experience do you have at, in Durga Puja? And this is why Rasa is important. Rasa theory expects that the audience member is going to be reflexive about the experience that the audience member has. So reflective as to make that experience an art object of its own. So the audience member is not only for Rasa, the audience member who's developed some competence as an audience member is not only appreciating the Lion King as a thing and not only appreciating, on the other hand, Durga Puja as a thing, but consciously attending to the experience that the audience or devotee is having in those moments and laboring to savor. This is the this is Russell Theory's language. Laboring to savor that experience as an experience. It's kind of like making a play out of one's experience besides the play that one is watching if one's at the Lion King, right? One has some kind of experience at the Lion King. And then you take that experience and you hold it in your hands and you look at it and you smell it and you feel its texture. I mean, Russet theory prefers the food metaphor, right? You, you, you put this experience in your mouth and you roll it around on your tongue and you savor it as, a, as an object that has its own qualities. You turn your experience into an art object itself. And, and the same kind of thing that happens in a, in a Durga Puja or some other kind of religious activity where there's a, there's a certain experience that's generated by the activity. 
what do you do? You take that experience and you look at it and you hold it in your hands. Ultimately, you put it in your mouth, you roll it around on your tongue, you savor it. And by savoring the experience as an experience, one depersonalizes the experience, makes it non-particular. And in in non-particularizing that experience, objectifying it, one sets oneself, one disassociates oneself from the experience. And yeah, go ahead. So you may have you may have um, an interlocutor say to you, well, in in Rasalila or in Durga Puja, the uh, participant, the audience member, is having an experience of the divine, and they may say to you, well, what is that? What could that be comparable to in the case of an artistic rendition like The Lion King? Or, or whatever musical or movie that you're watching, mm. um, The Last Jedi, or whatever, uh, The Game of Thrones. Right. What are they having an experience of? Is it divine? One, one wouldn't know until one worked through the savoring. The premise of the question that in that interrogates the difference of the difference in the quality of experience between going to the Lion King and and going to a Durga Puja. That that line of thinking, I think, presumes a difference in the first place. That can't be this is what religious activity and artistic activity is actually for to undo the sense the enculturated sense that those experiences are different the savoring of the experience is the labor that's involved in savoring those two experiences ultimately once they're objectified and separated from the self one then presumably according to the theory anyway one discovers that no they're not qualitatively different they're both both of the experiences are what emerge from one's collaboration with divinity in producing any experience and you know the material world is fake according to certain religious thinking because it's been it's it, it's experience that's produced by doing divine doing maybe if you're if you want to follow krishna devotion but what ras leela suggests and what um the Goswami suggested in the 15 and 1600s is that one can play with divinity. One should play with divinity and discover that the experiences that one has, that one thinks have an essential, irreducible quality to them, either religious on the one hand or theatrical on the other hand, or whatever other kind of experience, one plays with divinity in order to discover that those things don't have adjectivally expressed essences to them. One plays with divinity to find divinity in everything uh, and, and to find that one is essentially, because in the savoring you set what you thought was your personal identity aside, you discover that one is essentially in identity, a collaborative extension of divinity. That's, that's what's supposed to be in the experiences that one has, but one doesn't just get that experience. Again, uh, Russ, Russ theory is very explicit that, you know, the, the audience member who's going to get to some kind of Russa phenomenon is one who knows from experience and labor and practice how to get there. And that's true for, for the Goswamis as well. Effective devotion is hard work and takes some real effort. So these two kinds of experiences, uh, well, they may or may not be two kinds of experiences as the, as the argument goes, but um, both, the, both the, the devotee's experience of divinity 
and uh, the astute audience member's experience of whatever rasa, whatever flavor, mm-hmm. uh, whatever experience um, they co-create um, when watching The Lion King or uh, or Star Wars episode or whatnot. Right. Seems that both of these are comparable in that they're transcendent of the personal individual sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the artistic practice that Rasa thinks of and religious practice that ultimately derives from that aesthetic practice imagines that practice will undo the self will undo the illusion that one has self if 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 that's necessary but we'll we'll take apart the self as a structural thing uh and and restructure it in some other way so here's the question i have um so when we teach world religions for example we'll often start with uh the abrahamic religions uh, judaism christian islam and then sometime in the semester we'll move to uh the indic religions uh religions of of, of south asian origin um, hinduism buddhism jainism sikhism and it becomes uh clear that these two families of religions um can be fruitfully conceived of as structural opposites in certain ways. So when Rasa theory comes out of a religious ethos of cyclical, unending cycles of uh, time, uh, the universe is created and sustained for millions of years and destroyed ad infinitum, and and you have your you have your the the, the, the permanent supreme self is within you and experiencing the drama of mind, this illusory, phenomenal right. world. Right. That's a very different. Um, religious ethos perhaps than the Abrahamic ideology wherein um, the world is real, created by the divine, bereft of divinity because divinity is by and large beyond this world, beyond nature. Mm. Uh, Something you're supposed to be before and something you will ultimately encounter uh, after your death. That this is the that the the universe is linear, um, and after X thousand years, it'll all be dissolved at the end of days, right? right. Um, and you'll be uh, you know united with the divine, uh, so to speak. In these two religious meta narratives, there's a different idea of the extent to which divinity can become manifest in the world. Let's say. And so I'm wondering, you know, somebody who is of an Indic world can be that. Um, a Jain or Hindu or Sikh, mm. they have a worldview view um, amenable to participating with divinity and seeing the world quite literally as a stage, as Maya, as a play, as a masquerade ball. And I wonder if this comparison you're making, I wonder if one stumbling block uh, doesn't occur for individuals of an Abrahamic conditioning worldview, wherein the idea of participating with divinity directly or having experience with the idea that this is all uh, Maya is, is so foreign. I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if you could speak about this. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's theology, and then there's religion as it's actually done and experienced. And I'm I'm not the expert to be speaking on on what Christian theology might be through the ages, but I do know something about what kinds of experiences people have, even when they're the products of what we might call a Western Christian sort of culture. So for instance, the Obergau Passion Play. This is a thing that happens once every 10 years, occupies the summer, and it's a dramatization of Jesus' story from the Christian New Testament taking place, um, it's staged in southern Germany. And, and there's, a, there's a pretty good historical record 
for this theater phenomenon going all the way back into the 1600s, more or less a continuous theater tradition from the early 1600s. And you can go into the the eyewitness accounts and diary entries and records and so forth that people wrote in the 1800s, in the 1900s. These are Western Christians. And the way that they write about their experience of Oberammergau, and this isn't universal, right? You get a variety of opinions, but you get plenty of Christians speaking of their experience of the Passion Play as a kind of transcendent metaphysical experience of divinity, transcending history, Right? You get these phrases like, oh, I felt like I was in old Jerusalem. And the actors in history who have played roles get bonded in popular conception with those roles. Historically, actors who have played Jesus in that play get treated by a lot of people with a deference that actors playing other roles don't get. In fact, I mean, there are a couple of people who spent maybe too much of their lives playing Judas, whose lives seem to have been wrecked by having played that character. And so the reason I'm teasing all this out is the experience is what I'm interested in, how people experience the world. Um, And and we we find even in these religious traditions where in, in terms of formal theology, such things oughtn't perhaps be happening, but nevertheless are. People are in fact according to the record, experiencing divinity in their experience of the Oberammergau Paschenspiele. And so maybe what I'm even more concerned about is, how is that experience generated? And I think that partly, partly one of the reasons that that kind of experience is universal across cultures and, and across theatrical traditions is because of the creative impetus in people, not the actors, although yes, we'll include them, but in the audience members, audience members go to theater in order to create something. Even if they don't realize it, that's what they do. And if they're in collaboration with something like the Oberammergau Paschenspiele, what they create is a Christian reality that they experience in as a Christian reality. If they're going to Ras Lila, then, uh, then they create a Krishna experience that they experience as, you know, a Krishna reality. And that audience creativity, uh, I argue in the book, has to do with the kinds of role playing that people are disposed to do and that theater facilitates in, or maybe channels in a more specific way and in a more specific direction towards more specific ends, sometimes expressly religious and sometimes not. So really it's about the experience that people are having irrespective of their belief system or their worldview with respect to whether the divine is imminent or transcendent or uh, the world is a stage or the world is real. Really, it's, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is that irrespective of their ideological subscriptions, that human beings have an experience when engaging art, uh, right. theater, that occurs really irrespective of what their belief system is. Yeah, I think so. The 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 belief system then will give a certain, uh, I don't know, to adopt, adopt Russell language again, right, will give a certain flavor, a certain character to the experience. Uh, but the experience itself, I mean, you, we can find, I think, analogous experience even amongst the most secular, you know, even amongst what what do we call for lack of a, a, a more amenable phrase, even amongst uh, militant atheists, we can find comparable analogous experiences. If you've ever ever been to a movie or read a book or been to the theater that made you cry, 
you have to ask yourself why. You, you're never fooled that what's going on is real, but you're crying real tears. What is that about? And you don't have to, you don't have to have a theistic or a deistic or any other, you know, polytheistic outlook on life to appreciate that there's something really weird about having that kind of, what shall we say, real experience, even in the moment that one knows that what one is watching is fake. How do we account for that experience? I think that religion helps us understand how those experiences materialize, especially Rasa uh, going through the Goswamis and through Bhakti, help us understand that audience members, never mind what their religious tradition is or if they even have one, they're performing the experiences that they end up having. That's fascinating. So if there was one thing that you wanted or hoped that readers would take away from this book, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. That, oh my gosh, now I'm thinking about five or six things that I just hope everybody will get, right? The first um, one that pops into your head. The first one that pops into my head is theater is not fake. Now, the corollary to that is religion is not fake either. And and the reason that I think that, that the corollary is important is, uh, again, taking off of this uh, discussion we just had about religious exp- or experiences of any sort. One of the reasons that we can value religion and appreciate how religion operates, even if we're not disposed to believe in God or any particular concept of God, um, is because uh, we find in religion something that is, we, we find in religion a creative force. Now, the creativity might go any number of directions. It, it might go in a bad direction. It might go in a good direction. But we, we can appreciate that religion is is a creative, artistic sort of pursuit, that it's creating something that's not fake, even if it's not creating the existence of God out of whole cloth, it's nevertheless creating something that is, uh, I was just going to say real, but real is all sorts of problems, right? Religion just creates something. It creates something we, and we have to deal with. It. I think theater also creates stuff. That's its primary purpose. And we can think about theater being representational and imitative and pretend and all that stuff. That's secondary to what theater does. Theater is what it does in the moment in which bodies are in the same space, sharing that space and the time in which the event is occurring. You know, this this line of argument of yours, and I guess the, the main takeaway you have, uh, you invite the reader to, to accept is that theater is not fake in the same way that religion is not fake uh, for the practitioners or for the participants. It really, the, the aspect of religion that really, really comes to mind for me, I'm obviously not, uh, my background is not in, in theater or theater performance, but really ritual. Ritual has been soundly analyzed uh, in terms of symbolism and performance. Right. Uh, obviously, there are all kinds of uh, sociological and sociopolitical cues that occur, especially in Vedic religion. And yet, for a uh, for the priest and the yajamana, for the for the officiant and for uh, for the sponsor, the ritual is much more than symbolic. So, with the utterance of the mantra, with the with the oblation, it is um, directly participatory, where there is something created, whether that's the grace of the devi, whether that is a communion with a certain deity, whether that is um, pacifying a blockage in life, whether that's the delivery of a boon, mm. that, that one attends uh, the ritual sphere fully open to participating 
in something that is created, that has happened, right. versus one attending the ritual sphere so as to simply observe uh, the performance. And so that really comes to mind that parallel you're drawing, it seems to me very much alive in your mind in terms of the ritual sphere. So why don't um, we've certainly taken enough of your time for one day. Why don't you share with the audience uh, where this leads you to next? What are you working on next? Ah, yeah. Well, actually, so I mentioned earlier that I, you know, I've got to write another book to fix all of the problems of this one, but that uh, that's not my immediate project. Right, right now, I'm uh, working on a book about the Memphis-based photographer Ernest Withers, uh, whose work is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, historically, his early work uh, was fundamental to the development of the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, but his historical photographs of the Negro League in baseball um, and the music scene in Memphis, uh, from which you know so many music superstars emerged, those are really important photographs historically. So I'm I'm actually <laughs> following some uh, some Russet theory in discussing the photographs, how we experience his photographs, not only as some historical relics and for the value that they have as historical relics, but in the viewing of them. I don't know. Maybe this will maybe this will end up solving some of the problems in this book that I just finished because uh, I can't I can't quite shake Russa out of my head. But that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to figure out how the viewing of photographs works and how again how it produces the kinds of experiences that we have from artistic phenomenon. Russa is a uh, certainly a refined, if not very compelling uh, lens, I guess, theoretical lens, we're about to look at our uh, aesthetic experience. So it's, it's no uh, surprise to me. It's no wonder that even thinking about the theory can be transformative to one's consciousness in terms of how you engage art. So it's probably worth um, sticking with it. You seem to enjoy it and have a, have a handle on it. So good luck with this project. Oh, thanks. Um, As a scholar, you know that it's not whether or not you enjoy what you're doing. It's just that the, you know, the question has got to be answered somehow, even if you just are miserable and it's taking all of your time and sapping all of your energy. You know, some things you just you get, get in your head, you can't shake them and you just have to chase them until there's no more chasing to be done. Well, certainly you feel called, you know, if a book or a project doesn't call you, you know, one way in which you can define ABD, there's an entire class at the Academy for our listeners, I'm sure you're aware, there are a lot of folks who do tons and tons of work, they're PhD uh, candidates, they do their comprehensive exams, they do all their coursework, they do language training, they do everything, there's a, there's a word called ABD, all but dissertation. <laughs> yeah, They yeah. finish everything except the dissertation, so whether it's a dissertation or a book, my sense is like, if you're not called, like, what on earth is going to motivate you to pop this thing out? So obviously you're called, whether it's whether it's a maddening, uh, pestering annoyance in the back of your brain, whether it's a labor of love, certainly your your, your curiosity is awakening, you need to work some of this out. Uh, yeah. for yourself and, and for, for folks like us who get to read your work. So uh, once again, for our audience, we have been speaking today with Dr. David Mason, who is editor-in-chief for the journal um, Ecumenica, Performance and Religion. He's also the South Asia area editor for Asian Theatre Journal. You've been speaking to him about his book, The Performative Ground of Religion and Theatre, a fascinating read for anyone interested in um, South Asia, South Asian um, uh, Hindu, we could say Hindu aesthetics, um, the intersection between spirituality and aesthetics. Definitely recommend you check it out. 
So David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be able to talk about the book. It's fun. Great. And until next time, keep reading. I'm your host for the Hindu Studies Podcast, Dr. Raj Balkran. You can find out more about me at rajbalkran.com. Until next time, take care.